I hope these last two weeks have been enjoyable, healthy, and safe ones for you and everyone you care about. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to the first episode in 2022 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Abortion was once again put before the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday as opponents of Texas's anti-abortion law asked the court to force the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to send the case back to the lower federal district court so the challenges to the law could move forward. The Supreme Court ordered that move back in December. As of my recording this podcast, the Supreme Court has not yet acted on that request. Abortion is indirectly before the court today, Friday, January 7th, as the justices hear arguments in a case involving the Biden administration's COVID-19 vaccine mandates. At least three of the judges, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch, will almost certainly rule against the administration as they've ruled against mandates in similar cases over the last few months. Thomas likely will do so because he doesn't believe government at any level has the power to issue any such mandate. Alito and Gorsuch, on the other hand, will base their opposition, at least in part, on the principle that the Constitution guarantees freedom of religion and people have a right on religious grounds to refuse to be vaccinated. That's where abortion enters the picture. Specifically, in a related case involving a New York State mandate, Gorsuch wrote a dissenting opinion to which Alito signed on. Gorsuch said that the currently available COVID-19 vaccines have, quote, depended upon abortion-derived fetal cell lines in its production or testing, unquote. As such, Gorsuch argued and Alito concurred, people opposed to abortion have a right to refuse any treatment that derived from an abortion. That no aborted fetal cells were used in producing any of the current COVID-19 vaccines didn't seem to bother either Gorsuch or Alito. That's because those vaccines may have benefited from lessons learned in producing anti-rabella and anti-rabies vaccines that did use fetal tissue lines that were derived from two abortions performed over 50 years ago. Also, not seeming to bother either Gorsuch or Alito is the fact that those vaccines were also the subject of mandates in the past, and those mandates have never been challenged. Their religious freedom stand, though, is hypocritical, because if they get their way, the religious freedom of Jews will be denied. I'll get to that later. For now, though, the topic for this week once again is, where does Jewish law stand on abortion? As I've noted in previous podcasts on this subject, there's no simple answer to that question. All of Judaism's major religious streams, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, and Reconstructionist, have weighed in at one time or another to support abortion rights, but they've done so only on freedom of religion grounds. None of Judaism's streams encourage abortion per se. And some of the more stringent interpreters of halakha insist that Jewish law prohibits abortion, although they're divided over the reasons why and even over whether it's the Torah that outlaws abortions 
or that this was a prohibition imposed by our sages of blessed memory. There are times, though, when all but the most stringent interpreters will allow abortions, and even insist on one. Halakha even gives a Jewish court, a betnin, the power to order an abortion if necessary, if it deems that a woman's life is somehow at risk. If abortion was made illegal, that power would be taken away, which would be a clear violation of our religious freedom. In other words, while none of Judaism's streams support abortion on demand in the broadest application of that term, even some of the most stringent authorities, at least, favor the fewest governmental restrictions on its availability. There are Midrashic commentaries and other rabbinic texts spanning nearly 2,000 years that have painted an idealized picture of the fetus, including having it studying Torah while still in the womb. But these are commentaries and individual opinions. They're not law, and they're certainly not normative Jewish law. Normative Jewish law doesn't recognize the fetus as being a nefesh, in this case meaning an actual human. To be sure, interpreters of Jewish law are divided on the question of the viability of the fetus, but its lack of any status as an actual human is indisputable, or it should be. Jewish law doesn't view the fetus as having an independent identity until its head begins to crown during birth. As the Talmud puts it, gufahi, it's her body, meaning that the fetus has the same status as, say, a woman's hair or her fingernails, both of which she can do with as she pleases. That status changes only when birthing begins. That's also why the sages rule that the Torah denies the father any right to decide the fetus's fate, just as he has no say in whether his wife gets a haircut or a manicure. Gufahi, it's her body, not his. She alone has the right to decide its fate. As I explained in earlier podcasts on abortion, our sages base their ruling on a verse in chapter 21 of the book of Exodus, Sefer Shmod. Quote, when men fight and one of them pushes a pregnant woman and a miscarriage results, the one responsible for the miscarriage shall be fined, unquote. As I see it, another verse found in Sefer Bimidbar, the book of Numbers, relates to this one in a significant way. In Numbers chapter 36, we're told, quote, You shall not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of a capital crime, unquote. In other words, under no circumstances can money, or anything else for that matter, buy a person's way out of being punished for having killed another human being. So, if the Exodus verse says a monetary fine is the punishment for a person who causes a miscarriage, and the Numbers verse prohibits such a fine in the case of the murder of a human being, it follows that the Torah doesn't consider the unborn fetus to be a human being. Now, someone could argue that the Exodus verse refers to a fetus that hasn't yet been fully formed, probably only a few weeks old at best. There are two reasons why such an argument is without merit. The first, of course, is that the verse in Exodus doesn't qualify when the miscarriage occurred. Any miscarriage, regardless of the age of the fetus, is covered by the verse. The second reason goes back to the Talmud's declaration of Gufahi, it's her body. 
The Talmud says it's her body and her body alone. And it stays that way until birthing has begun. This means that for the entire time a woman carries a fetus, it's not a life as Judaism defines life. It's not a view found in Christian theology, to be sure, but the Jewish view has nothing to do with theology. The late one-time chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, Rabbi Lord Emanuel Jacobowitz, was a renowned medical ethicist in his day. As I've mentioned in earlier podcasts, he once wrote that in Jewish law, the right to life of a fetus before birth, quote, is entirely unrelated to theological considerations. Neither the question of the entry of the soul before birth nor the claim to salvation after death have any practical bearing on the subject, unquote. This is true, he said, even though Jewish law strenuously tries to protect the unborn child whenever possible and whenever practicable. He noted, for example, that it's even permissible to violate Shabbat in order to save an unborn child. However, he added, none of those regulations are based on the premise, quote, that the fetus enjoys human inviolability, unquote. Rabbi Jacobowitz was orthodox. A conservative authority, the late Rabbi David Feldman, had this to say, quote, While Christianity's position on abortion has raised the moral level of Western civilization in this regard and has succeeded in sensitizing humanity to a greater reverence for life, it is obviously comprised at the same time of theological postulates which the Jewish community cannot share, unquote. That's normative Judaism's position, and it all begins with that verse from Exodus 21. By interpreting the verse as they did, the sages in another section of the Talmud were able to rule that a woman's life takes precedence over the life of her fetus. When a pregnancy endangers the woman's life, the fetus must be aborted, the sages ruled despite one sage's claim elsewhere in the Talmud that a fetus is fully fashioned on the 41st day of pregnancy. This has profound implications for Judaism's approach to abortions. Maimonides, the Rambam, codified the decision of the sages in chapter 1 of his The Laws of Murder, and it was similarly included in the authoritative code of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch. Once again, bluntly stated, until it begins to be born, the fetus is not a life according to established Jewish law. Rambam explains this by also citing the ruling that once the fetus does begin to emerge, the mother's life cannot be saved at the expense of the life of her emerging child. That's because Jewish law states that, quote, one life may not be taken to save another, unquote. If the fetus may be aborted before its head begins to crown, but not after, because at that point it's considered a life, it follows that the unemerged fetus is not considered a life. In fairness, I should note that among the strictest interpreters of Jewish law, the fetus at this stage of pregnancy is in fact considered a live human being. They argue that allowing it to be aborted before birth is an exception to the rule, and therefore should not be seen as denying it that status. This view, though, is held by a very small minority of halakhic authorities, and it lacks any serious biblical or Talmudic support. All of what I just said, of course, would seem to suggest that Judaism supports a woman's right to choose. After all, it's her body, 
and the fetus, regardless of its stage of physical development, is not an independent life. The more liberal authorities agree, albeit with reservations on moral grounds. It's one thing to allow and even encourage a woman to have an abortion because her health, mental or physical, may be endangered by the fetus. It's quite another to look with dispassion on an abortion performed when no danger exists, or worse, when it's performed for frivolous reasons. Frankly, I doubt there's anything frivolous about a woman's decision to abort, and Jewish law is not insensitive to that, but it must take that possibility into account. In one respect, Judaism does offer a backhanded support for a woman's right to choose. As I mentioned earlier, if her health is at risk and she refuses to abort, a betdin, a Jewish religious court, theoretically can order her to have one, although these days such a court has no practical way of enforcing such an order. It would be more accurate, therefore, to say that Judaism supports a woman's right to have an abortion for reasons it considers valid, while recognizing that the decision on whether the reasons are valid must be the mother's. As noted, of course, some authorities insist abortion is prohibited by Torah law. Their reasoning, however, is convoluted in context. For example, we're commanded in Genesis 1, in the first chapter of Breshit, to be fruitful and multiply, and abortion violates that, they say. Working against that argument is something the sages said about the commandment. It only applies to men. Women are not required to be fruitful and multiply, which is why the sages gave women all the rights in matters of sexual intimacy, while denying those rights to men. They ruled that way in order to protect women from being sexually abused by their husbands or partners. If a man wants to be fruitful and multiply, he needs to be very nice and very kind and very loving to his partner. Another argument these authorities make is that it states in Genesis chapter 9, quote, Whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, unquote. That's the standard and accepted translation of that verse. The Hebrew, though, is subject to an alternate translation because a single word, be'adam, can be translated as by man, as it is in that translation, but can also be translated as within man. So the Hebrew text can be read this way, quote, whoever sheds man's blood within man, his blood shall be shed, unquote. As the sage Rabbi Yishmael put it nearly two millennia ago, quote, What is a man within another man, if not an embryo in his mother's womb? Unquote. In any case, what the rabbis who see Genesis 9 as prohibiting abortion can't answer is, why, if abortion is murder, it's nevertheless not classified as such, either in Exodus 21 or anywhere else in the Torah, or in the deliberations of the sages? Or why, in fact, the Torah neither mentions abortion nor prescribes a punishment for it? The best answer these rabbis come up with is that the abortion prohibition is implied and that it does carry punishment, albeit at the hands of heaven only and not by earthly authorities. Here's the bottom line. Most Jewish authorities would permit abortions if the physical health of the mother is in danger. Some are more comfortable allowing it through the first 40 days. Many others would allow abortions all the way up to the moment of birth. Admittedly, though, 
defining the health of the mother is subject to varying opinions. Some see it as her life being in actual danger. Others see it as there being merely a potential risk to her life. Still other authorities take an even more liberal view, extending the definition to include quality of life issues. For example, Benzion Meir Chai Uziel, the late Sephardi chief rabbi in pre-statehood Israel, once ruled in favor of an abortion when tests showed that the mother would likely become deaf if she carried the term. Her life wasn't at risk, but the quality of her life was, and that's what mattered, he said. Abortions also are seen by many authorities as acceptable if the quality of life of the unborn fetus was an issue. For example, they'd allow an abortion if tests showed that the unborn fetus would suffer from some horrible disease or physical deformity. To prevent the infant from suffering, even some authorities on the right have permitted abortions in cases of Tay-Sachs disease, for example, or rubella. If a woman became pregnant after a rape or incest, many authorities would allow her to abort. Some would even allow it in cases where the fetus developed out of an adulterous relationship. Such a ruling is found in the 18th century by the noted authority Rabbi Yaakov Emden, also known as the Abbas. It took a lot of heat for that ruling back then, by the way, but it's often cited today. Clearly, there's no easy answer to where Judaism stands on the broad abortion question. But just as clearly, Judaism has a stake in preserving a woman's right to an abortion. That brings you back to the hypocrisy of Justices Alito and Gorsuch. They're so worried about protecting freedom of religion for Christians. They couldn't care less about freedom of religion where Jews or people of any other faith are concerned. For us, hampering with abortion in any substantive way infringes on our First Amendment right to freedom of religion. Hampering in any way with freedom of religion opens a door we in the United States should never have to go through. Uri Litzedek, the Orthodox Social Justice Organization, summed this up in a letter signed by 59 rabbis protesting Texas's anti-abortion law. I'll end this podcast by quoting the text of that letter. Quote, We, the undersigned Orthodox rabbis, respond with alarm to the 2021 Texas Senate Bill 8, which effectively bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Jewish law shows the utmost concern for life and potential life. Our communities are emphatically pronatal, celebrating new lives and investing heavily in the education and moral development of our children. At the same time, there are cases where Jewish law requires aborting a pregnancy. Abortions are devastating and we counsel them in situations where tragedy is nearly inevitable or has already occurred. But tragedies happen, and abortion is a medical procedure used by Jews since antiquity to mitigate dire outcomes and protect life. Under Senate Bill 8, Texan Jews are not able to protect a mother's life in accordance with the ancient laws of our faith. The new Texas law is cruel to all women, and for Jewish women, it constitutes a violation of their constitutionally protected right to practice religion 
and of their unalienable rights to pursue life, liberty, and happiness as understood by Jewish law and practice. We call upon Texan lawmakers to reverse Senate Bill 8 immediately, leaving decisions about abortion in the hands of women, their health care providers, and any religious and spiritual guidance they choose to seek out, unquote. As always, Ori Lutzedek is right on point. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I do hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org, www.shammai.org, and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish Standard but want to read my columns, go to the columns page of my website. The latest column is on the relevance of Tubishvat, the new year for trees. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Make the most of 2022. And above all, stay safe.